This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Dex Hunter-Torek. Dex Hunter-Torek is head of communications for the Oversight Board, the new independent body that will be making binding decisions on Facebook and Instagram's most challenging content issues. During his career, Dex has served in a string of high-profile roles across the tech and policy worlds, including as head of communications for SpaceX, head of executive communications for Facebook, including four years as speechwriter for Mark Zuckerberg, and as Google's first executive speechwriter, where he worked with Eric Schmidt and Larry Page. Before that, he was a speechwriter for the Office of UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. In 2016, a week after the U.S. election, Dex left his job at SpaceX to spend the next 18 months focusing on working with leaders on social and political causes, including advising political leaders and candidates in Europe and the U.S. Dex is a New York Times best-selling ghostwriter and a frequent public speaker on technology issues. Hi, Dex. Hi, Deb. So, Dex, this conversation is especially exciting to me because you are so essential to my thinking about ethical tech. I mean, really, a lot of how I think about this topic and so much of my inspiration for these ideas come from you. I don't know that I ever told you that. Uh, Well, that's great to know. (laughs) I first met you in 2017 at a rally for an organization that I co-founded called Tech Stands Up. Uh, held in Silicon Valley and is as appropriate to tech nerds. We held it on Pi Day, which is March 14, <laughs> 314. It was, it was in the wake of the November election, and many of us were newly aware and I think acutely disturbed by the way in which tech products and culture and leaders had perhaps led us to this really disturbing election and the aftermath of that election that came in its wake. And we're also really concerned about the way in which tech leaders seemed to us unwilling or or at least reticent to use their enormous power as thought leaders and their influence to speak up. And then on that day at that rally, you get up to the podium in front of the crowd and you deliver this tremendous speech that I still remember about how you as a thought leader felt the need to speak up. It was truly electrifying. And I've always wanted to ask you, what brought you to that stage on Pi Day 2017 to join Tech Stands Up as a movement? How did you get there? Well, you know, I think there was a real political journey for me over the years leading up to that moment. And it wasn't any single moment. You know, a lot of folks have asked me, was it, you know, Brexit? Was it the 2016 election in the US? It really was a lot of things. And, you know, actually, I think before that, it was the global refugee crisis that had an incredibly powerful effect on me. My father was a refugee in World War II, and he had just passed away in 2015, you know, at the height of the crisis. And it was a moment that for me was absolutely shocking because, of course, it was the greatest humanitarian catastrophe in modern times. You know, more than 70 million people in the world on the move, having lost their homes and their their livelihoods. And on the other side of the world, in Silicon Valley, that massive global catastrophe was something which barely raised a murmur. And 
for me, I went into tech, you know, after being at the United Nations. And, you know, it was really, for me, a transition in my career that was driven by an urge to do something different, but at the same time, a desire to do something quite consistent, which is what I thought very naively was go and change the world and make it better. And there were a lot of folks in Silicon Valley who it was very clear did not actually have that much of a desire to go and have that kind of impact. Uh, there were lots of very, very thoughtful people who were trying to do good and to deliver you know, social impact. But there were lots of others who you know, had that power, had the resources, and they did not you know, try to go and engage with these massive challenges that were unfolding right before our eyes. And by the time we got to 2017, I think it was absolutely undeniable that you know, the water was at the level of our heads. We had to do something as an industry. Uh, we had to speak up much more forcefully. And we really had to encourage a, a cultural and intellectual shift within the industry towards something which is much more proactive on these issues and away from this notion that Silicon Valley is a world unto itself. One of the things that we attempted to do in, in planning that day was to respond to the fact that tech leaders um, seemed at the time unwilling to speak up or use their power of voice to you that might correlate with a lack of will or interest. But it also seems like at times these leaders are very aware of the issues and at times they have perhaps commitment to those issues that they have uh, voiced elsewhere. But in the context of a charge against tech, they seem unwilling to respond to their critics or at least reticent, if not unwilling. Why have so many tech leaders been reluctant to step up? Is it just a lack of interest or is there something else going on? Well, you know, a, a lot of tech leaders are very unfairly caricatured as being callous or disengaged on these issues. And actually, they, they see their impact in very different ways in the world. You know, a lot of folks will think, I'm building this product, I'm building this app, the value that that tool creates in people's lives, that's the impact I'm trying to have in society. Uh, I don't feel I need to, you know, be somebody who opines on the issues as well. And I think it, it's a perfectly reasonable approach and you know certainly it's a consistent one for a lot of folks in the industry but it's also one that i think ultimately doesn't stand up to the rigors and the pressures of the world we're in today for for better or worse you know the tech industry is in a position where leaders have you know immense impact on the world around us and on the systems which govern our society and as individuals as well they have you know tremendous power and ability to motivate people and their words carry immense meaning. And I've always believed that if you have you know, might, you have an obligation to use it for right. Uh, it is not sufficient to say, you know, I am going to have an impact on the world through some very clever, very remote means of, of, of action and urgent decisions of today can be, you know, left to somebody else. You know, when the building is on fire, we all have an obligation to go grab a fire hose. You know, you use the phrase rigors and pressures, and when we're under rigors and pressures, those are what we would call ethical moments because they ask us what we should do. What are the things that we should be struggling with in terms of what we should do? In other words, what kind of ethical concerns do you think we ought to be paying attention right now to in tech? I mean, where to start? I think, <laughs> you know, perhaps the most obvious one is considering the impact that tools and technologies have in communities which are nothing like Silicon Valley. It, it constantly is a source of frustration to me when 
we have new inventions and technologies that are created purely, it seems, to solve a very, very first world, very, very Californian set of issues. And of course, we, we are living in a global age. We are living in a time when the things that are built you know, in Palo Alto and in San Francisco are, are absolutely having a massive impact on communities all over the world. And probably uh, in a majority of places, which are nothing like California or the Bay Area whatsoever. And refusing to think through what are the effects of those tools on people's lives, you know, well beyond California, I think is absolutely a dereliction of duty. I think that you're really capturing something very important here, which is that ethics is very much tied to equity and diversity and inclusion, and that there can be no ethical tech without thinking in a broad way about things like cultural diversity, geographical diversity, diversity of utility and access. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of times I think people try to make diversity and inclusion a very separate agenda. You know, it's seen as a thing that is uh, a challenge and an important one to solve, but it's not connected to the day-to-day work of building a product and building a business. And I think that's completely wrong. You know, it comes down to this fundamental challenge, which is, are we getting the right people with a range of different perspectives that are applicable around the table so they can go and build the, the products and the businesses that we want? Uh, and if you are not you know, working really, really hard to get that kind of 360 perspective on the world and to go well beyond folks who may just come and share your own perspective, then I don't see how you are able to build those products that really do what they're intended to do. And of course, I think the recent history of Silicon Valley has shown where that, the, the limitations of that have come in. Yeah, absolutely. You're making a very important point here, I think, in, in that diversity and inclusion are typically talked about as a morally good social ends, but they're not talked about in terms of a vital utility. In other words, that if you want tech products that better serve a robust set of human values, independent of a specific geographical locality or a specific context, then you really have to start with who's at the table and what they can provide. Uh, I want to get back into this a little bit later, especially in the context of your work with the Oversight Board, but I wanted to ask you to give us a little bit more context for you. You have an awesome, and I mean awesome, as in something that truly inspires some massive awe list of credentials and experiences. You've worked with some of the biggest names in tech. And in addition to working with Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, you have formerly served as Google's first executive speechwriter, um, supporting CEO Larry Page and the executive chairman Eric Schmidt. And I think it's also important to point out that you began your career, as you said, at the United Nations as a speechwriter and spokesperson for the office of the United Nations Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon. And you hold a bachelor's degree in politics from the University College in London and a master's degree in Russian and East European studies from the University of Oxford. I now, by the way, deliver a bi-weekly PSA to uh, for technologists to take their humanities classes and to take a robust set of uh, classes beyond technological practices uh, and technical um, expertise very seriously. And I want to pick your brain about the, the background that you bring to your role as, an, um, as a custodian in many ways of, of technology. How has your experience as a writer and as someone with a political background informed your thinking about tech? Well, I've always believed that all technology issues are also really just social issues. Technology only becomes interesting and it only becomes valuable when it is having an impact on people's lives and on communities. 
And when we think about technology, we are not there just to study the tools. We are not there just to study the products. We are there to look at the impact on society broadly. And when we think about politics, it's not a separate realm. You know, technology is valuable because it's about changing people's lives. It's about creating change in communities. And when we think about technology, it's not just about looking at the products and the apps and the tools. It is about looking at the impact broadly on society. I think the other piece that being a writer and being a writer, you know, across a lot of different issues really impacted the way I look at tech is I don't see communications as something, again, that is just minor or disengaged. And, you know, as a writer, as somebody, you know, who spent my career writing about inventions, but also writing about politics, writing about societal change, uh, I, I really see the need for all of these issues to be uh, looked at through the same prism, which is we're there to change the world. Silicon Valley, you know, often gets lampooned for having this desire to go out and change the world. But that's exactly what technology is there to do. And that means we have to look at society very, very deeply, very, very thoughtfully, as we consider the impact of those tools on the way we live and on the way we work. The other thing I would say is I always, always have thought that communications is key to advancing the agenda in, in the industry and in, in society. And a lot of times, you know, in my career, I've come across folks you know, in tech who say, yeah, the product speaks for itself. And you get people who don't really care about communications. They almost disdain it. You know, they think, you know, here's some PR guy here to spin my words. And that's not the case at all. This is about communicating the impact of tools on society, the good and the bad, and being able to have a conversation about what that change means uh, for communities. And it, it's something I think is very, very important if we are actually to lay the groundwork for having a, an ethical and humane you know, transformation in society created by those tools. Absolutely. I had this conversation with a philosopher on this podcast, and I asked him a similar question. He said, you know, at the root, what technology asks is how can we make human life better? And he says, that's the question that philosophy asks. What makes for a good life? I find that so absolutely beautiful. There really is at the root such a symbiosis. Another way of putting it is how I put it to my students, that the word technology actually comes from the Greek techne, techne. Techne means art or craft. So at its core, there really is this kind of uh, root relationship between the two that only more recently have we created a division between. And I wanted to ask you another question about that division. Uh, if you could speak maybe perhaps to the converse, you write quite prolifically as a speechwriter for major figures and you uh, published personal editorials. You are a very uh, prolific political and cultural commentator. How has your thinking and work in tech influenced your writing? One of the things I found in tech is that no matter how smart and capable you know, folks can be in one domain of thought, uh, they tend to be really, really bad at a lot of others. You know, and I think the, the, the truth is you can be brilliant at one issue or one subject and you can be an idiot on everything else. I think that's just the fundamental truth about humans. And after spending so long in the industry and seeing brilliant people making terrible mistakes and short-sighted decisions, uh, it very much has been a humbling experience. And it has made me very much driven 
to go and challenge orthodoxies that appear in thought and in writing for a lot of different folks. This is not a, a, a problem that is unique to tech. It is one that I think can be witnessed across elites, uh, you know, in every realm of society, you know, from business to politics. And really, we, we need to have a much more holistic view of the kinds of changes we need to create in society and our own limitations if we're actually going to be able to navigate what's coming down the pipe towards us. So I mentioned previously my bi-weekly now PSA, and I'm going to qualify it at this point as a medical condition, which is known by its scientific name, humanities-itis. The condition is one where I have to deliver a weekly PSA, bi-weekly PSA, about the importance of writing and humanistic thinking for thinking and succeeding in fields and jobs and opportunities that extend far beyond what we typically think of the humanities or jobs that are based in writing specific experiences and positions. So help me deliver this week's PSA. Why should the next generation of technologists care about things like writing and humanities and culture? Well, writing, humanities and culture are all about who we are as people. And if you're building tools that are there to serve people, then you want to understand people very, very deeply. Data is the fuel for the industry. But the idea that data can illuminate you know, the human spirit or the things that motivate people, the things that uh, you know, drive our society it is actually ludicrous. There is no objective, quantitative view which can tell you why, for example, there are so many people who are really, really angry in the world right now. And uh, likewise, the solution to that is not something that you're going to just crunch some numbers to come up with a tool that will go and fix that. It is going to be a process of holistic change. It is going to be one that requires us to engage very, very deeply with the things that people care about and the things that make people feel. I, I very much think that it's important to augment the, the data with a, a, a much broader understanding of what makes people people. I wonder if we could circle back to your background uh, in human rights, which you spoke about earlier. One of the things that I find very compelling and also kind of, um, for me personally, very mystifying is that both of us share this trajectory where we've started off as people interested in and working in the realm of human rights, and we've ended up in tech. And I constantly get asked how I navigated that journey. What was it that propelled me from one thing to the next? So I'm curious to ask of you, what do you see as the link between that work and your past experience working with the United Nations, your broad interest in human rights, and your work in tech? I mean, I went to work for the UN because I believe that the world was fundamentally broken. The international system does not represent nor serve the vast majority of the people of the world. We are living in a time where inequalities and injustices are so obvious and in our face. You know, I certainly don't know how you could not want to engage with changing, you know, those huge problems in our society. And, you know, for me, going from the UN to going to Silicon Valley was about continuing to do the same thing, continuing to follow the same impulses that, you know, guided my career, but in a very different setting and with a very different and obviously a massively expanded set of resources. You know, when I was at the UN, one of my most frustrating memories was the uh, year and a half that folks in the Secretary General's office spent trying to requisition, you know, $150 to buy a coffee machine for our department. And it was a thing that went through literally uh, the UN Culinary Committee, which is the most riotous uh, bunch of individuals you'll ever find. It went through the Finance Committee. It went through all these layers of bureaucracy 
And after 18 months, it was denied. And it was uh, absolutely amazing because in the intervening time, what happened on a daily basis was diplomats would go down about 20 floors of this building, exit from the building, cross the street, purchase a cup of coffee, cross the street again, go through a full security screening and checkpoint, and then go up in the elevator. So going to get a cup of coffee was about half an hour per person. And you had several thousand people who were off doing this. And that for me was just the most appalling and yet amazing example of the very sharp limitations of trying to deliver change through the UN system. There's obviously a lot of bigger and more severe problems with that model. But going to Silicon Valley, you know, there's a place with a lot of resources, very much taking the opposite approach. How can we optimize the environments that we work in so that we create innovations so that we can go out and attack in many ways the exact same set of global problems that drive people to go and work in diplomacy and politics and so on. So for me, it wasn't about making a huge life change, actually. It was about continuing the same journey uh, just in a different place. You know, I share your frustration with the coffee situation. We have a similar thing going on in the English department, or we did before the pandemic hit. Of course, the the bottlenecks and the, the bureaucracy you cite here has a counterpoint in tech culture, which is the move fast and break things mentality. Do you view move fast and break things as a better system than this very laborious, very Byzantine process of bureaucratic, very slow change? I mean, I feel that slogan gets, you know, slightly more attention than it deserves. Uh, you know, it was a slogan, you know, at one point or another, uh, designed to be an inspirational message, you know, for, for employees at Facebook. But, you know, how that was interpreted, very, very different ways. Uh, you know, in general, I think, you know, the most uncharitable definition of that, which is we want people to go off and, you know, build very quickly and move at lightning speed and not fully think through the, the consequences. If there are negative consequences, we'll just assume that sort of collateral damage. It's expected in the process of rapid change. I think that's obviously a terrible thing. When you are building systems with such massive impact on society at such global scale, the even limited collateral damage that comes from a decision can be absolutely catastrophic for, for entire societies. You know, it will affect millions of people if it only affects a small fraction of your user base. But, you know, I, I think, you know, broadly, moving fast spoke to something which was, I think, founded in a, in a good place, which is institutions, you know, from government and business and in, you know, the old technology industry tended to move at very, very slow speeds. And that has a cost as well. You know, the world is groaning under the weight of the immense social and economic and political crises that we face. And many of the tools that are being built in Silicon Valley have the ability to change those situations. And actually moving too slowly actually is to deny people access to the tools that can really transform these situations. So it's all about having a balance. And it's about being able to move as rapidly as possible while still paying attention to the responsibilities of the industry. Move fast and break things is the now famous motto, of course, of Mark Zuckerberg, the motto famously voiced, at least initially, by him. And you were the voice behind the voice of Mark Zuckerberg, writing his speeches and crafting the outward-facing rhetoric of one of tech's most influential figures. What values and ideas do you think were most important at Facebook? And what values and ideas do you think 
it is most important to communicate about Facebook, at least what were they for you? And and what, if anything, do you think gets misunderstood or miscommunicated or misframed about Facebook in the public? Well, you know, I think fa Facebook talks a lot about community. And I think it's absolutely a sincere cornerstone of the culture and the mission of the company. You know, Facebook is about building community and connecting people. And, you know, certainly there's a, a lot of folks who very, very strongly are motivated to go and try and strengthen relations between people uh, and communities and businesses and, and all the folks who make up uh, the world around us. And I, I think it's something that people are always attempting to discern hidden motives in. Folks will say, you know, this is all, you know, just fig leaf dressing for creating a, a ginormous advertising machine. And, you know, Facebook absolutely, you know, uh, is, a, is a company. It's there to make a profit. But I think it, this ultimately comes down to whether or not you have a, a completely cynical view of business. If you believe that business has the ability to be a force for good, then I think that shouldn't rule anything out uh, in and of itself. And certainly, I think Facebook has done an enormous amount of good in the world. Of course, there are limitations. Of course, there have been problems and mistakes. But, you know, when we have the conversation about what those problems and limitations are, we also need to look at what has been the positive value created. I should probably just ask it as a blank question. Do you think that the critiques that have been leveled against Facebook are fair? Uh, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of different critiques. Some are fair. Some are definitely not fair. I think what we've sort of lost sight of in much of the commentary is the ability to have that nuanced, holistic assessment of the value of the tools that we're building. You know, if you were to listen to some critics, not just of Facebook, but of the tech industry as a whole, you would assume that the tech industry was literally there to destroy the world. You would assume that these are a bunch of supervillains, you know, looking to upend things and really, you know, entirely driven by very selfish and nefarious motives. And that simply is not the case. Uh, it's certainly, it's not true that the vast majority of people in Silicon Valley, I think, are, are driven by those kinds of agendas. It, in many ways, I think the industry is actually disproportionately weighted towards people who are actually trying to deliver a positive social impact. Uh, in 2015, you wrote a piece that was published on the platform Medium, where you talked about new forms of connectivity enabled by social media. I imagine that this is rather Facebook specific, but but I think it goes broader than that. In, in your piece, you wrote, the internet is uniting the world, and that is going to change all our lives. I think that most people, whether they use the internet or not, and whether they even know it or not, are living in a world that has been deeply changed by the internet. How do you characterize that change? You know, I got a message from somebody recently who had read my article, and they said, came across this old article, a, a uncharitable view would be that it has aged very, very badly, you know, given how divided the world is. And uh, we had a great debate because I, I actually don't agree with that at all. I wrote that piece, you know, at the height of the refugee crisis. And it was at a time when, you know, Russia was obviously fighting its shadow war in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, things in the Middle East were continuing in much the same vein they are now with, you know, endless conflict and, you know, intractable hostilities. And I think the key is the internet and technology is, in spite of all those things, driving something very, very profound at the global level, which is for the first time in our history, there is a very small coterie of people 
who are being connected, who share much more in common than, than what divides them, and they do not see themselves as part of the other, and they do not see others as part of the other more accurately. And that is something that is a, an absolutely revolutionary force in global society. We have never had global citizens of any uh, meaningful nature until this point in human history. Being a global citizen was always a completely sentimental kind of thing. It was the sort of thing you wrote about in UN speeches, which meant absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. And I actually think now for the first time, we do have truly global citizens. You know, the fact that Black Lives Matter is not just a thing that matters, you know, in the United States. It is a thing that, you know, resonated around the world and brought millions of people onto the streets all over Europe, uh, you know, in just the last few weeks. That is a sign of a global citizenry emerging. Uh, you know, the fact that we have a global climate change movement, you know, standing up for action on a global challenge and actually recognizing it as a global challenge, uh, that again, something profoundly unusual. And, you know, I think a lot of people take it completely for granted because they've grown up in that environment and they assume that a cause can ripple around the world and mobilize people in that way and touch all these different lives. And it's something we've never had in human history. And the internet, I very, very strongly believe, has been the real driving force of that. Should we celebrate a world that is more connected unequivocally? Your, your celebration is seems at least quite unequivocal. But are there some more cautionary tales that might give us pause about this new newly connected global context? I mean, I don't celebrate anything unequivocally, you know, except possibly <laughs> birthdays. Uh, I like celebrating people's <laughs> birthdays. But um, the, the changes that are taking place in the world are, you know, always come with uh, limitations. You know, every positive thing always has some pitfall. There is always a dark side of progress. And also every transition in human history, something that, you know, we have cheered, has always come with a backlash towards it. You know, uh, every previous generation of technological change has had people who have questioned that. It has had people who have been left behind by those changes. And, you know, there's lots of people who absolutely do not want to be part of a new world that is connected, that is forging global citizens. And, you know, there's been so much attention paid towards, for example, nationalism, you know, and the fact that populist political movements uh, you know, which are very much driven by nationalist impulses, have, you know, grown up over the last few years. And it's been very strange to me that we've not really paid attention to the real driver of that, which I think is the opposite. Internationalism has become something that is absolutely transforming the nature of society and the ordering of the world. And in many ways, I think that populist and nationalist backlash has been the natural response to internationalism. And, you know, of course, it, it's a battle of ideas. It is a battle of movements, and it remains to be seen which side will prevail. And I, I definitely do not subscribe to the belief that, you know, folks like Steven Pinker put out, which is that progress in many ways is sort of inevitable. And we look at the data and we see everything going up and to the right and in the right direction. And thus, we should all take part in that. I actually think we're at a moment of incredible fragility to the world. And the fate of that set of global citizens and our ability to continue driving positive changes in the ordering of the world very much hangs in the balance. I would take that even a step further and tie it back to our conversation about technology, because I think that that balance is going to be so much governed and mobilized one way or another by technological practices and technological products. The title of this podcast is, of course, Technically Human, which plays on a lot of things. The way that the concept of the human is, is tied to and inhabited by the way that human beings have changed, 
changed and been changed by technological production and culture. It plays on the idea that what it means to be human is so mediated by technologies. And it plays on this porous boundary between humans and our technologies. I'm thinking, for example, of the iPhone as a prosthetic device for our memories. When will we increasingly store parts of our memories or use this device as an extension of our minds? For example, when I don't know something, I assume that I can find the answer by searching on Google's on my smartphone, and I don't know anybody's phone number anymore because I've offloaded that dimension of my recall onto my phone. To give a Another example, my word processor changes my spelling errors without me even recognizing it. My email generates what it thinks I will say. And actually, its predictions end up sometimes even changing what I end up writing. I guess what I'm getting at here is that an awful lot of what we have typically understood to be human functions, expressing ourselves in conversation with others, knowing and interpreting information, composing our thoughts, are now done by technologies. Now, what we understand to be the human is very much governed by these products. Do you think that technologies, especially the ones developed and distributed in our lifetime, are changing what it means to be human? Yes, I do. And I, I think that very much goes along with my perspective on global citizens emerging. I think if it weren't for the fact that we could consume content you know, seamlessly across borders, if it weren't for the fact that we have for the first time you know, in human history, the ability to see a real-time stream of information from all over the world and for the ability to forge global communities, genuinely global communities with people from, from all over the world. I don't think we would be in that moment where you are starting to see people mobilize for these global causes in this kind of way. I mean, we've had momentary sort of blips of global consciousness you know, leading up to the present day. Uh, you know, there were moments, you know, like Live Aid back in, uh, you know, the 80s. We've had, you know, the sort of early beginnings of, of an environmental movement, you know, back when the ozone hole appeared. But these were really, really exceptions to the rule. And national interests, you know, still very much ruled the roost. And I think for the first time, we've got global interests being defended by a global community. And that that goes along with having a very different set of content and opinion makers and communities in the world. I want to turn now to some questions that ask you to speak directly about ethics. How do you think about the relationship between ethics and tech? Well, I think uh, every technological situation poses very, very challenging ethical questions. And our ability to deliver uh, good products and services that are there to you know, ultimately do no harm, but also more than that, to actually advance good in the world, depends on being able to consider those ethical questions as an integral part of the product development process. One of the mystifying, but I think really important things to know about tech culture is that even though some terrible consequences have emerged from tech, and this is what you have spoken to earlier, the people who work in the industry are, I think, kind of like really generally good people. You're a good person. I've been on the Facebook campus. Everybody there is a good person. Everybody seems to mostly subscribe to the kinds of liberal values that California is very famous for. Tech has this utopian vision of businesses, and in the case of larger companies, its campuses are built almost as mini utopias, reflecting that idea of the good, the utopic. The people who work there really seem to see themselves as good people. How do we understand the relationship between this culture of good people and a utopic vision on the one hand, and the production of some deeply damaging tech products and resulting dystopias on the other. Is it really just unintended consequences or the dark shadowy side that emerges with any progress? 
Or is there something else that you noticed going on? I mean, I think there's a bunch of you know reasons, but I think it fundamentally comes back to all companies, no matter how benign they intend to be, they are human institutions and they are imperfect. And there will be mistakes that are made. There will be people who will make decisions which are not the right ones and are not always driven by the right impulses. And, and that is simply down to the fact humans are not capable of navigating these kinds of uh, situations always in the right way. And, you know, we see it in every other set of institutions as well. You know, I, I think government is a very good and essential, you know, set of institutions. I'm not a libertarian. And yet government repeatedly makes massive, overwhelming mistakes on a daily basis. And we all see them. You know, I think the media is fantastic. I think freedom of expression is extremely important and rests on the ability of a free press able to do its job. And yet the media clearly has huge, uh, you know, issues uh, as well, you know, and the fact that, you know, trust uh, has been declining fastest in the media more than any other, you know, set of institutions in society, you know, over the last few years, I think speaks to that. So I, I, I think it, it is largely driven by the fact that we are looking for a, a standard of delivery and a standard of behavior in tech, which I think actually in many ways is often un unrealistic. So are these consequences inevitable or are there things that you would like to see fixed? I mean, I absolutely think there are things you can fix, uh, you know, just because we will always have mistakes and we will always have limitations of human institutions and technologies is not a, a means of excusing inaction on these things. We have an obligation to go out there and fix these things over and over again to prepare for the next set of things. But we should also just, you know, understand that there will continue to be mistakes made. And you know, particularly when we're dealing with, uh, in many ways, an entirely new set of social and, and policy issues in the world with tools that are completely new, uh, that are transforming the way that we are interacting around the world. I think we're, we're asking too much to assume that people will always be able to look back you know, and see the effects of these things at the moment when they, you know, created them. So, you know, I think the, the thing I would say that tech needs to do a better job of is being able to invest the time in studying the societies in which these tools are being deployed and trying to understand as best it can the impact those tools will create in very, very different scenarios, while at the same time recognizing there are things they probably will miss. In terms of asking tech to do this better, tech, of course, is not a singular entity. It's composed of individual people who bring with them skills and backgrounds and experiences that uh, enable and that inform what they do. What kinds of backgrounds and experiences and styles and, uh, and training do you think that tech ought to include that perhaps it doesn't yet include enough of? Well, I think tech needs to have a lot more people working in its ranks who do not come from backgrounds of privilege. There are uh, an extraordinary number of people, you know, who are, you know, playing leading roles in the industry who have come from uninterrupted lives of privilege. And they think that that is how the rest of the world is. And even when they don't think that, they don't have the means to craft solutions and make decisions which genuinely account for the very different ways people live. Going back to Steven Pinker, you know, the thing that drives me bananas about, you know, tech leaders, you know, who say Steven Pinker is fantastic. Let's all celebrate the fact that humanity is fundamentally good and on a good path and the world is fine and going to be better is, okay, sure, you can believe that. You can look at the data and, and you know, see the trends which do show that extreme poverty has been declining. 
uh, in the world. What does that mean, though, for the mother who has to work three jobs just to put food on the table for her kids, has a terrible quality of life, has no security in her life whatsoever, but she's not classed as living in extreme poverty and therefore her life is supposed to be fantastic. Even if that data were true, even if that you know fundamental reality that Steven Pinker speaks to were right, what, what's that supposed to do for the person who is struggling to get by? And by the way, that is the vast majority of the world. We live in a world where you know billions of people around the world go to bed hungry every single night. Tell me what your tools and apps and businesses are supposed to do for that fundamental reality. You know, and a lot of times uh, the tech industry simply doesn't have an answer to these things. And I think part of the reason there is because it has done a very, very poor job in genuinely trying to broaden the social base of employees who are coming into these companies. You know, there is still too much focus on having a very narrow sliver of humanity who come with Ivy League backgrounds uh, and asking them to make decisions which are entirely informed by their own experiences. And I think you're pointing to something else very important, you know, in, in answering that question, you turn to the very singular case, the case of this particular person in her particular uh, experience, in her particular situation, who might not be accounted for by the data, who might not be accounted for by a, a broader kind of distance view perspective. Do you think that in the age of big data, there is a possibility for restoring or finding a place for interpreting and using the individual story as a lens through which to make decisions? Or, or are we past that point now? Are we in the world where big data is going to direct our decisions? I mean, I've always been a, a real cynic when it comes to buzzwords. I think big data and AI, you know, have uh, accounted for all sorts of very different tools, some of them very clever, some of them utterly dumb. And big data is not some sort of panacea for all the problems that we have in society. And it is absolutely not a, a, a silver bullet, which is going to go off and slay things like poverty or inequality. It is a tool, like all tools, it uh, can be used for good and for evil. Most of the time, it's used for things that are really, really boring. And if we want to really attack the root causes of inequality in our society, that requires not just an algorithmic solution, that requires political will more than anything. So I, I actually don't see big data as some transformational force in and of itself. I think it will allow us to do interesting new things in products, but it doesn't fundamentally attack the root causes of, of the crises that we're seeing in our societies. In your current role, you direct communications for the Oversight Board. In, in this role, you're tasked with making binding and independent decisions about some of the most challenging content issues on Facebook and Instagram. What kind of dilemmas and decisions are keeping you up at night? Well, the, the board has a very uh, wide scope of, of issues that it will be taking on. It will be looking at all the most challenging content issues on Facebook and Instagram. And you know any one of those, uh, I think, is is sufficient to keep anyone who cares about uh, ethical applications of technology awake at night. You know, the, the thing that keeps me awake, though, in my job, uh, is the fact that we are living at a moment in time where you know societies around the world have become incredibly polarized, and there's also a, a huge uh, crisis of trust in the big institutions in our society, in businesses, in governments, in the media in civil society. And our ability to navigate these immense you know, challenges and these very complex issues 
depends on the ability of people from very diverse backgrounds to have a shared conversation about these things. And it's becoming more and more difficult to have that shared conversation because people increasingly only want to see these issues through the lens of partisan struggles, but also, you know, really zero-sum views of the future of the industry. And this is the thing that I'm constantly chewing on, because really, I think, you know, if we want to solve these things, we've got to be able to come together, both the critics and defenders of technology, both public, you know, policymakers, uh, as well as technologists, and really try to forge a, a shared conversation together. I'm glad you brought up that polarization, because it seems to me an odd, or perhaps inevitable, consequence of the same kind of connectivity that you spoke about earlier. Can you reconcile those two things? On the one hand, the polarization that results from the kind of ecology that we're in right now, and on the other hand, the kinds of new connectivity that that also results from that same medium? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, I think it, it goes back to that backlash towards an age of global connectivity that we spoke about. You know, the fact that, you know, we are living in a, in a time where we have unprecedented access and proximity to one another as part of this global community also means there's, there's new tensions. There are communities and people and issues which are very threatening to the status quo. And uh, every advance in one direction presents opposition from another direction. So I think it's entirely possible to have a time when people are being brought together to collaborate and connect in, in very positive ways that we should be cheering also comes along with people who are very, very opposed to that and uh, actually presents a, a much more disruptive force in society. One of the really interesting features of the Oversight Board is that in addition to its independence from individual industry interests, it's also independent from individual governmental interests. It's a global organization with geographically, politically, intellectually, and culturally diverse composition. We've talked about the importance of building that kind of diverse composition. But one of the, I think, other features of tech is that its connective dimension allows it to supersede the legal structures of an individual state. It has to account for diversity of legal approaches and legal regulations. And this really requires a kind of global oversight or global approach. How do we think globally about tech without losing sight of its regional specificity? Well, you know, um, actually, just circling back to that, uh, tech actually is very nationally driven. You know, tech companies have to obey national laws in the jurisdictions in which they operate. You know, in some cases, companies have refused to go along with that and have chosen not to operate in those markets. You know, so on the one hand, yes, these are global platforms. Uh, on the other hand, there are very different rules that impact those services uh, in, in different markets. And actually, where we see the real tension in this is between folks who want standards from a different jurisdiction to be applied to another. There are, there are people who will say, uh, you know, I want the same rights. I want the same ability to express myself as, you know, people from another place. You will see solutions to different problems being deployed in different ways around the world. And the fact that we are in this, you know, proto-global community and that we all have sight in many cases of what is going on in different places around the world has created a, a digital inequality. You know, we are yearning to have access to those rights, or we are yearning to have access to those tools, but we don't always have them. The second part of the oversight board I, I really want to draw out is that element of diversity. And we've talked about this in different parts of 
this conversation, but I really want to localize it with this question. The Oversight Board has such a diverse, and I think intentionally diverse, set of people in its operation. And that, that diversity includes geographic diversity, political diversity, intellectual diversity, cultural diversity. Why is that diversity important to this work specifically? The board is going to be making decisions that are uh, impacting a community of billions of people, potentially. And the kinds of issues that will come before the board will come from very, very diverse uh, you know, communities around the world. You know, there will be issues that will not just be coming from the first world. They will really be coming from people, you know, in every continent and from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of very different perspectives. And I think we're going to be dealing with a set of issues in that context, which also will elude easy answers. And having that diversity around the table, I think is going to be essential for just helping the board to be able to navigate these things, even you know, with that tremendous intellectual firepower and that diversity. I'm sure there will continue to be lots of situations where the board will need to seek additional expertise. And that's also, by the way, why that mechanism exists uh, you know, in the way the board's been designed to continue to bring in uh, additional counsel. I think that what I've come to understand from this conversation and what I understand that guides you very deeply is that the guiding premise of the oversight board lies in the idea that by setting up this commission, we can better ensure that our tech products are ethical, that they do not do the harm that we have seen that they can do when oversight is lacking. What do you hope the oversight board will prevent or accomplish? And why shouldn't we just trust tech companies to regulate themselves or governments to regulate these tech companies? Where should we draw the line between internal regulation and decisions and oversight? Well, I, I think you need to have a, a, a lot of different actors working together, collaborating to come up with the right solutions. And no one institution or, or set of actors is going to have all the answers. You know, the industry has a role to play, you know, as the folks who are building these tools, you know, who have the ability to create additional solutions to some of the problems that, that are created, have the ability to fix holes in their product. You know, they obviously have a key role to play. But at the same time, it is the role of policymakers, it is the role of political leaders in our society, in our democracies, you know, to make decisions based on a, a broader set of considerations. And yes, we can demand that tech leaders, you know, and entrepreneurs act guided by ethical impulses and by guided by by those common interests. But uh, it is the job of our leaders to do it, and and they are accountable to us. And so they clearly have to have a a big part of, of the solution and the ability to craft, you know, common regulatory approaches, you know, which support the entire industry. That is something that they absolutely have a, a key role to play. So I, I think uh, it, it's not about one set of actors versus another. Really, we have to think about, you know, all of them working together. Likewise, with the oversight board and what we hope to achieve, it, it's not an institution that has been created to solve all the problems that people have with Facebook. It is not designed to take on every single issue. And it's also not designed to supplant the role of regulators and policymakers and others. They all must be a part of that uh, process of change and a big part of that. But what the Oversight Board can do is in one important area, which is a, a part of Facebook's challenges that has you know, attracted a lot of attention and had a, a lot of impact on different communities around the world, there the board is going to try and create a, a stronger, more principled, more transparent, and better decision-making process. And you know, people will continue to disagree 
with things that the board does. You know, I'm sure that there will be decisions that the board makes where lots of people will will not be happy. But what the board will do, and hopefully this is something that is very different and creates a lot of value in the industry, is it will explain in detail, thoughtfully and transparently why those decisions have been made. And it is being made by a set of folks who are operating independently and are coming from very different and diverse perspectives. And hopefully that will create a much greater assurance in the process of change that uh, these decisions are being driven by the very best intentions and not by any other motives and not by any commercial or political or reputational interests that you know may just be Facebook's. And the board will not be shy at all about calling out Facebook if they don't implement those decisions and, you know, where the company does not meet up to its commitments to its uh, community standards and values. Uh, we probably have time for one last question. I want to end by circling back to that moment where we first met in the wake of the 2016 election. Since that time, I think many critics now look at algorithmic bias, manipulation of social media connectivity, a degraded ecosystem of dependably factual information, that results from an internet space that lacks proper gatekeepers and custodians of the truth, where we're now in a situation where many people receive and depend on fake news, where real news gets diminished or buried by a fake news ecosystem, where belief in reality, access to basic facts, belief in facts, is frequently determined uh, by the company you keep, which is now our social networks. You're now back in the in the UK, but in the US, we're facing another election, one that I think is going to be incredibly important uh, that many people are calling the election of our lifetimes. Many of us are worried about the way that technological products, specifically in social media environments, might be a force in determining the outcome. What's your take? And are you optimistic for us? Well, I am optimistic because I'm an optimist, you know, and I think we we get outraged about a lot of things these days. People are angry uh, a lot of the time. A lot of people are angry all the time. I think it still comes down to whether you believe humans are capable of overcoming the challenges created by humans. Are we able of building, you know, more complex interconnected societies and overcoming the challenges that come with that. And, and I do believe we can do that. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, I think progress is inevitable. It, it It's something that, you know, very much can be delayed and postponed. You know, we'll have to, you know, see what happens. But, you know, social media will play a huge part in that. The ability of communities uh, and individuals to mobilize, get access to different perspectives, to engage in that you know, shared conversation as a society, you know, it comes along with the democratic process. That is something that social media has a huge role to play. And how exactly, uh, you know, it interacts with the moments that are coming before us later in the year, uh, I think we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But, uh, you know, certainly for all the problems that you identified with social media and with our digital age, you know, I've also seen all the opposite happen. We've just got to keep it in perspective. Thank you, Deaths.